This is chapter 118 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, a negotiation thriller inspired by a couple of true stories from World War II. You'll want to get out your journals and micron pens to make time for the new novel from Abby Waxman. And we travel back in time for this week's speech read set in the sun-drenched French Riviera during the 1950s. Peter D. Johnston is a corporate negotiator by day who already has a nonfiction book about the art of making deals under his belt. He travels the fictional route for his latest writing project, a novel about an American negotiator and young British nurse who team up to sabotage Hitler's plans for an atomic bomb. He recently spoke to our Pat Farnack about weapons of peace. It was such a great read, a thrilling read, I have to say. And your your premise is... Um what if the Nazis had developed the atomic bomb first? Wow. Yeah, and this is based on actual research and revelations, Pat, that we've learned over the last couple of decades about how much more far advanced the Nazis were towards an atomic weapon at the end of the war, which obviously would have had huge ramifications for the world as we know it today. And you include, it was uh, fascinating, you included a letter to FDR from Albert Einstein. Einstein was worried about the Nazis' atomic capabilities right from the start. They split the uranium atom uh, in 38 and therefore had an advance on everybody else in terms of the Allies and the Manhattan Project. And Einstein later rude sending that letter because he, he knew that he had started the Manhattan Project at that point and ultimately in 1945 the use of an atomic weapon in Japan. Before we get into your terrific story, uh, why do you suppose the Nazis didn't follow through or weren't able to uh, follow through? There's lots of conjecture on that point. Uh, but a lot of people for years thought it was the Nazis couldn't do this because they were uh, exposed to war and, and bombings and their cities were being bombed out in for 1944. Uh, but we later learned that much like North Korea today, the Nazis had this incredibly sophisticated underground network that they were using to work towards an atomic weapon. Uh, the number of explanations on why they didn't get there, really they ran out of time. Thank goodness. Weapons of Peace is about bravery, really, and it features Nash the spy and Emma the nurse. Yeah, and my Nash is uh, America's top negotiator, and the premise is late 1944, he's crossing into Germany trying to, to convince Nazi scientists not to follow through on the atomic weapon. And uh, unfortunately, he shot up before he can do that on this beach in southeast England. And he ends up in a hidden away hospital, uh, Leeds Castle, actually was a hospital during the war. And the only person he can reach out to with the secrets of his craft and his mission is a young British nurse with a troubled past, and that's Emma Doyle. And so this, to the best of my knowledge, Pat, is the first negotiation thriller that's been written. This is what I do for a living, is I negotiate for countries and for companies, and uh, where 
Uh, Grisham has used the law as the premise for his novels. This is the first to do it with negotiation. I was going to say this is exactly in your wheelhouse because you are the author of Negotiating with Giants, so it's perfect. And and this is such a romantic and mysterious figure, too. It, it is, and uh, Nash and Emma have uh, some romance. Uh, and It's good. I'm and, glad you included that. Yeah, and uh, I, I think as readers, you learn not only about these very two stories that are it's inspired by two true stories, the Nazi pursuit of an atomic weapon and Leeds Castle and its secret role uh, uh, as a hospital and another role that I won't speak to here that's a surprise in the book, but mm-hmm. that it actually played in helping the Allies win the war. So it's inspired by two true stories, and I'm hoping that not only is it a good negotiation thriller, but that people learn something about influence in their own lives and how we can judge our leaders today uh, on their approach to negotiations on our behalf. Well, I love that part of it. I also love the tidbits that you threw in. Emma is a nurse, and she foresees the evils of tobacco way before. I mean, this was during World War II when it was very glamorous to smoke. Well, the truth is, and she... You're right. Eva has a thing about smoking, does not like it. She's lost relatives of hers uh, to lung cancer. And we knew about the evils of smoking and what it can do to you uh, back in 1912. It was actually a German doctor who had discovered that link and, and hypothesized it. And who would have believed it would be 50 years, more than 50 years later, that the tobacco companies would start to own up to this? And Titanic, also there was a, um, a little uh, segment in there about why possibly the Titanic really sank. That was a failed negotiation, and that's based mm-hmm. on actual research as well over the quality of rivets used to keep that, uh, the Titanic together and its keel. And when it hit the iceberg, arguably, it wasn't because of the iceberg. It was because of a failed negotiation over getting those quality rivets. There are so many what-ifs in this. What if they had more rivets uh, uh, put into the hull. What if the Nazis had uh, gotten there first in the atomic bomb? Uh, Ava Brown, also the mistress of Hitler, there's a role for Ava in this. There is, and Ava is uh, somebody who's very mysterious in history. She's not well documented as a person. Uh, her influence with Hitler was much greater than uh, people recognized at the time. Uh, I think it was played down by Hitler as to how influential she was because the Nazis didn't want her influencing his thinking. But mm-hmm. she's, a, she's a strong female character. Weapons of uh, Peace could make it onto the big or little screen easily. In my mind, it's so cinematic. Any... Thank you. I've I've been told that, and there's actually a trailer. uh, There are several trailers Mm -hmm. for Weapons of Peace uh, that are available online, uh, and uh, it does feel very movie-like to me. That's how I write in both Negotiating with Giants, my first book, and this, my first novel. Uh, It's all visual imagery to me in terms of thinking through different scenes. What are you working on now? I am working on... 
my client work. Uh, oh. After putting a, a, I didn't put aside my client work. I wrote this book over seven years, involving research back and forth across the ocean, and uh, at I would do this at night, uh, the writing part, and during the day, I'm advising clients around the world on their toughest negotiation challenges. Well, you need a time to breathe, right? And to get your next story percolating. You, you do. And I will probably go back to nonfiction, but I've also been told, uh, based on reviews, that this begs for a sequel, given the ending of it. Yes, yes. Well, we thank you for coming in and for writing the book, first of all, and for coming in and doing the interview this morning. It was Great. It's my pleasure to talk about Weapons of Peace, and uh, thank you so much for having me in today, Pat. You know that saying about the best laid plans? Well, that's exactly what happens to the title character in the bookish life of Nina Hill. Nina is a young book-obsessed bookseller whose carefully planned life goes way off script when her estranged father dies and she inherits more than she bargained for. I spoke with author Abby Waxman about her love letter to readers everywhere. I think you've written the ultimate book for book nerds and the socially awkward. Where did this idea come from? Oh, well, actually, it was inspired by all the lovely book nerds. And I don't know if they were socially awkward, but the lovely young women who worked in bookstores that I met last year when I was touring to support my last book. And I met all these women and they were all lovely and they were adorable and cute and smart and they loved books and they dressed in really cute vintage clothing. And I was like, I love you all. I'm going to write a book about you. So that's basically what happened. It's inspired by real life. So it's like a, a love letter to your readers in a way. It is. It actually really is because the, the readers are the best part of my job easily. So, yes, if anything I can do to give back even a little bit, then it seems like a good idea to me. And I'm glad to hear they're based, uh, or the story itself is based on, on real people because there were more of, than a couple of things that Nina says and does that had me thinking, oh, good, I'm not the only one who does that. <laughs> <laughs> That's always good to hear. How much are you like Nina? Well, she's much younger and slimmer and prettier (laughs) than I am. So apart from that, um, I am like her in that I love books and I love social media, not social media, sorry, um, popular culture. I don't love social media, Uh, popular culture, movies and all that kind of stuff. So like her, I'm constantly thinking of quotes or references to do with movies or TV shows or things like that. But she's far more organized than I am. Like she's very obsessed with her planner and getting everything really sort of nailed down to the last minute, whereas I am much more disorganized than that. You're not then on the the bullet journaling bandwagon. I am not. I am not. (laughs) I try. I love planners and I love to start a new planner and I love to go through and write all the birthdays in. And then I very swiftly just stop using it. It's pathetic. You sent me to the Internet because I had never heard of it before I picked up your book. Oh, well, there you go. You see, if I've achieved one thing, I can die happy. <laughs> you know, there, there are touches of Jane Austen throughout your book, and one reviewer actually called you a modern-day Jane Austen. How does that kind of comparison make you feel? It makes me giggle. Like, that's silly. <laughs> <laughs> totally different ballpark. I have nothing, nothing to Jane Austen, who is the greatest. So, yeah, if I could... Uh, it's a lovely comparison, and I appreciate it. Um, but, uh, yeah, Jane Austen is in a class of her own. I also feel that maybe this book should have come with a worksheet where, where those book nerds of us could check off all the books that you mention in the book. Oh, that's actually a fun idea. I should maybe put that on my website. But, you know, it's, uh, I, hope it's, I think it's more fun to just discover them on your own. There are, there are plenty of them. And I actually do have a list because I was so worried that the legal department would be 
cranky with me because of all the different references <laughs> that I did actually keep track. So, um, yeah, maybe I should talk to the publisher. Maybe we can arrange a, a prize for the person who can actually spot them all. Now, are these books that you yourself love? Are there books that you know other people love and you had to include them? How did you decide where you were going to go with that? Because they, they really spare in all sorts of genres. Yeah, that's me. I'm, I'm a complete, um, I don't want to use a rude word, but I am a, a lady of easy virtue when it comes to books. <laughs> uh, so I love, I love all kinds of different genres. I like all kinds of different books. Um, so, yeah, that's me. I am not uh, highbrow in, in any way. I love it all. TV, movies, books. It's all good. I also have a serious case of bookshelf envy after reading your book. Yes, that, that of course, is completely dream writing. Like, who wouldn't want a room that's just full of bookcases? Um, yeah, several of my Pinterest boards are literally just rooms with bookcases in them. So <laughs> I think we all want that. And a library ladder. You know, I jumped right into this conversation to talk about all the things I love about the book and about Nina and, and her friends and everyone she surrounds herself with. Why don't you just give us a little bit of an overview of what the story is? Okay, so it's about this girl, Nina Hill, who's a sort of millennial lady. And she has her life exactly where she wants it. She works in a bookstore. She has a trivia team that's pretty competitive. She uh, has a book, different book club every week. And she has her life measured and, and uh, planned down to the minute. And she's pretty happy. I mean, she's a little bit anxious, maybe socially. She's a little bit of an introvert, which is not a flaw. Um, so she has things going on. Maybe sometimes she wonders if maybe there's, there's something she should be doing, but she's not entirely sure. And then a father that she never knew dies and leaves her this entire enormous, garrulous, friendly family that she has to deal with. And it sort of all goes pear-shaped as we say in England, it all goes to pot. And so she meets all these relatives and tries to make it all rather brief, but finds herself drawn in. And there's a bit of a romantic interest as well. You mentioned at the very top of this interview that this is based on the, the people you met in the bookstores during your last book tour. Have they had a chance mm -hmm. to read this yet? And what do they think of it? I don't know. if they. I mean, there have been a lot of advanced copies out. I'm sure that they've had a look at them. Whether they recognize themselves, I'm not sure, but... Uh, <laughs> Certainly, the secret is out today. I think one of my, my favorite relationships you have in the book is the one between Liz, the bookstore owner, and her landlord. And this sort yes. of back and forth. And, and I'm not going to give anything away. I love the way it resolves itself, too, and the little nicknames that they each have for each other kind of come out to each <laughs> other and they mid it. And it's just yes. this really like great zen little moment. Thank you. Yeah, but that is actually, she is based on a real woman who works in a real local bookstore called Chevaliers in Los Angeles, which is my local bookstore. And the woman who runs that bookstore is called Liz. And so that is a direct thank you to <laughs> Liz, who is a wonderful woman and probably the best book recommender I've ever known. And I'm sure she's, she's going to stack very many copies of this book. Well, she's, she's a reasonable woman, so I imagine <laughs> that she will stack whatever is necessary and then keep promoting everyone else. She's also very even-handed, but she's just one of those people you can go to and say, I really liked this book. And she'll say, well, you then you should, you would like this other book. And that is a gift that many independent booksellers have and not everybody does. Them. And the world needs more of them. them. That is true because we, it's nothing worse than finishing a book and then casting about for the next one. So yes, they're, uh, they're very useful and wonderful people. 
It's funny that you bring that up because, you know, here in New York, we have a, a we don't really have independent bookstores. We've we've a few of our places, we've we've lost them and there are just a few left in a city of eight million. And so when you right. when a book like this comes out, you do really realize how important they are to the communities that they're in. They really are. I mean, it's really they've become certainly Chevalier's is very much a neighborhood bookstore like they have. We, it's very much like Knights, which obviously is a very, very thin disguise. Um, for uh, for the bookstore. And they have authors' nights and they have reading clubs for kids and they have all these kinds of things that, that the book the store does in the book. Yeah, I feel very bad for I mean, I lived in New York for many, many years. And, you know, basically the only bookstore I could go to for my neighborhood was, you know, Barnes & Noble. Not that there's anything wrong with Barnes & Noble. Not, I'm not dissing Barnes & Noble, but, um, yeah, local bookstores really get to know their customers in a way that it's impossible to if you're that big, you know. Well, I think if there are any book nerds out there listening to us, they should run and pick up The Bookish Life of Nina Hill. Abby Waxman, thank you for talking to us about it today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Before the world was obsessed with Meghan Markle, there was Grace Kelly, the first American princess. Her whirlwind romance and unforgettable marriage to Prince Rainier of Monaco captivated Hollywood and romantics the world over during the 1950s. Their love story served as inspiration for this week's beach read, Meet Me in Monaco, the new novel from Hazel Gaynor and Heather Webb. They recently stopped by our studios and spoke with our Marla Diamond. So you two have collaborated on a book before. Um, and you write historical fiction. So Meet Me in Monaco is centered around the royal wedding. Um, and it also has a side story. Are all of your novels historical fiction? Do you do you take an event and uh, make a story around it? Yeah, so we both write, um, as well as collaborating on historical novels, we both write our own historical novels as well. Um, and absolutely, yeah, so it's that ability to take a very well-known, in this case, Princess Grace of Monaco, or it might be uh, a very well-known event. So my first historical novel was based around the Titanic, for example. Um, So what historical fiction allows you to do is take the known facts um, and and find the gaps in the story, find where the archives are silent, find where your imagination can fill in those unknowns. Um, what were people really thinking um, and why did they do certain things? So it's a lovely combination of things we know about and then adding in layers of human emotion and being able to relate to these distant periods of history and people. So you layered a romance upon a romance. We did. We Tell wanted two stories to sort of run parallel to each other. Um, both Sophie, our main characters, arc, if you will, throughout the book, um, how she would grow and change and, and also learn to fall in love the real way, you know, the, the happily ever after sort of way, um, alongside Grace's big change as well, and, and what they both would have to give up in terms of career and or not and make those choices. Um, and uh, it just it made for really rich storytelling. So everybody loves a royal wedding. And this was <laughs> one of the first if not the first, that was watched by a international audience. There was uh, a ton of interest in it. Here was this Hollywood starlet. She had won an Oscar, and she was going to give it all up for her love in this tiny principality yeah. of Monaco. Um, and it was a fairy tale story. 
Absolutely. I mean, she was adored um, as an actress and, and was a style icon in her own right. And herself and the prince met quite um, unexpectedly. It was quite an impromptu meeting um, while she was in Cannes at the film festival for the first time. Um, and this love story blossomed. They actually spent time writing to each other when she went back to America after that initial meeting. And this beautiful romance blossomed. And then the engagement was announced quite quickly. And again, quite a surprise to people. And then she was moving over to live in this unknown little principality, um, at, you know, near the south of France. And she left it all. She left this amazing career and she was right at the pinnacle of her career. She had just won her Oscar, but she was going to become a princess. So I think, you know, there's so much romance and it just captured people's imaginations. Um, and it was a global news story. And obviously her studio, MGM, were very aware of the marketability of that. So they actually produced movies of the wedding. It's in two parts. Um, you can actually find it on YouTube, Meet the, the Wedding in Monaco. Um, so that is often talked about as her last movie was starring in her own wedding, which I think <laughs> is absolutely fascinating. So yeah, it really just touched people's hearts and captured her imagine everybody's imagination. And this uh, wedding occurred in 1956, am I correct? Yes. Way before any of us were born. Yes, thankfully. <laughs> so you had to do your homework on this one. We did. Um, just to backtrack a, a smidge, this was the very first majorly publicized um, event that set off a huge media storm. This was the beginning of the paparazzi. So it created the sensation, but it also, what happened was they wanted to, um, the royalty wanted to sort of keep it under wraps and lockdown to keep everyone safe and to make it a fam more of a family affair and uh, the press was not having it you know and so this is the first time that something like that had happened and there were fights outside of uh, the palace in the streets between press photographers um, they were you know sitting in a bar smoking a cigarette drinking scotch and waiting for them to come out and and just it was pouring rain and they were all you know sort of somewhat miserable waiting for this shot that they needed to give to their bosses and so this was the you know the first big media storm yeah. um and uh we see a lot of that today now still don't we maybe oh, not so much absolutely. brawling in the streets but yeah, yeah. we absolutely we're really i suppose indulged and there's so much information about Grace Kelly so I think what we had to do as, as novelists was read as much as we could about her as a woman um, and understand how that media intrusion in the wedding affected her um, and you know what was going on around them so there's an enormous amount of material about her some of it very scandalous tabloid um, some of it more sensitive and, and romantic so we had to sort of pick our way through all of that and decide which parts of her story we wanted to focus on. Um, and it's almost about what you leave out as much as what you put in, because we could have written five novels, I think, with, with Princess Grace at the heart. Um, so it's being selective about which parts of history you choose to focus on um, and then filling in the gaps with the fiction. But we, we read amazing books, watched lots of amazing videos, um, did you go to Monaco? We did go to Monaco, of course. We had to. <laughs> yeah, we had to. We wanted boots on the ground, so to speak, and, you know, smell. It's it's a very, 
there's so many flowers. It's it's very perfumed. The air is perfumed. I know that sounds silly, but it absolutely is. It's kind of a it's a magical place. The the buildings are beautiful uh, and pristine, and just everyone is wearing. You know, they're dressed to the nines, and there are these fancy race cars going down the street. I mean, it is it is glamour. Fancy. It's oozing in glamour. Um, and so it was really great to see that in person and not just read about it. Um, and then, you know, we sort of traveled into the south of France, too, and, and up to Grasse, where um, the perfume capital is. Uh, and our, our main character is a perfumer. So we wanted to delve into that whole world, too. And... Um why wouldn't you want to write a novel about such a beautiful place? It's just, <laughs> uh, it's lovely, and you really do bring it to the page. Um, I read this um, on the beach and felt as if I were at the south in the south of France. I mean, you really do bring us there uh, with your characters. Um, but uh, getting to uh, Sophie and the whole paparazzi scene—that is how your main characters meet. Yes. Um, because paparazzi is chasing Grace Kelly. Yeah. So how tell us about the friendship between Grace Kelly and your main character, Sophie. So we very much wanted this to be a story about chance encounters, which is really how Grace and Rainier met. Um, so we were fascinated by that as a starting point. And obviously there were lots of people in and around that circle. So how did the people who interacted with Grace how did she affect their lives as well? And when we were researching, obviously there was this huge interest in the wedding and lots of the French couture houses and perfume houses and makeup um, places as well wanted to vie for her interest. So they could say makeup for the day provided by Max Factor or whoever it was by Lancôme. So we found this fascinating piece of information where female representatives from those um, perfume houses, for example, went to meet with Grace to present their products and hope she would wear their fragrance on the day of her wedding. Um, and we were like, okay, here's where we bring in our fictional character. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We have this young woman who's struggling with her own artisan family perfumery, and she has this chance encounter with this princess. Um, and what would happen to her and the fortunes of her business if Princess Grace were to commission her to make a perfume for her wedding. And that did actually happen. She did commission, um, it was a creed perfume called Florissimo, which she wore on her wedding day, and it was her wedding perfume. Um, So that was our jumping off point for, we can go to town with this. This is a fabulous piece of um, history that we can weave all sorts of wonderful as things well as around. all the sensory details about yeah. the south of France. I mean, we think of you know the ocean breezes and those beautiful rocky cliffs and you know rose wine and <laughs> you know again the perfumes and and so we thought okay if we're going to go to that part of the country we want to bring as much of that in as possible. So again, that that perfumer angle was absolutely perfect for that. So mm. um, and in terms of the friendship. Um, we had Grace sort of come in and out of Sophie's life, almost like a fairy godmother, uh, and and not necessarily to make it magical, but to have someone that would help her really see and value her part in um, both in Grace's wedding, but also in bringing beauty to the world. They both brought you know this sense of art to the world that were very different, but but equally important. And I think um, that whole artisan lifestyle is something that the French hold very dear, and and we wanted to capture that element too. 
It also allowed us a great way to have a look inside Grace's mind as well. So to bring her onto the page and for her to have interactions with our fictional character, Sophie, um, and there were people like that around her. So it gave us a way to see a little bit more into what was Grace thinking and feeling as she stepped onto the Constitution to leave her home, her family, her country, and go and marry a prince. So through conversations that she would have, um, that, that allowed us another angle to look at her as a woman, you mm. know, that we can all relate Absolutely. to. Sure. The story behind, we all want to know about the, the palace intrigue. Absolutely. Was it a true romance, I think, is, mm. is the big question. What did you find in your research? There were, of course, there were conflicting accounts. You know, there are things that said, oh, they both had lovers, both Grace and, and the mm. prince had, had lovers, or, um, you know, he's really controlling and she can't be happy in that sort of environment. Um, and, you know, I think I think that you give up your lifestyle, you become a grown woman in a, in a grown-up relationship, and you move across the world and learn a new language. There's going to be an adaptation period. I mean, you're really going to have to to um, grapple probably with culture shock and, and all of these things. And, um, and, and so I'm sure there was that period. And I, you know that they were picking up on some of those things, I suspect. Um, but... By all accounts that we saw, mostly, they were very much in love. And um, he was devastated when she died, just absolutely wrecked. Mm -hmm. And, um, of course, there's no proof that they had any sort of um, extramarital affairs. And it's not something I believe, and I don't think it's something that Hazel believes either. Yeah, so I think people will always, and we see it now, don't we, with you know the, the most recent royal wedding and you know Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. We saw it with Princess Diana and Prince Charles. People love a bit of scandal, mm -hmm. so they will always look for where is where are the holes in this story? Where is it going wrong? Because that's far more interesting than a happy ever after. And I think that's why there's a lot of scandal associated with the wedding and how it came to be and were they really happy and how could she love him? He was slightly odd, you know, and how could that happen? But actually reading accounts from her closest friends, mm -hmm. from the bridesmaids, we read some fascinating um, memoirs of a couple of her bridesmaids who were her closest friends and they talked very openly about how how in love with him she was and how touched by his way of expressing his devotion to her and she was a smart lady she you know I think she went into this with her eyes open as much as you can at the age of 26 going off to become a princess um, but she was she spoke in later life about she she understood that her role was to be a princess and a mother and she was a doting mother um, and a wife, um, you know, and I think we chose to reflect that side of the relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but such a whirlwind romance. As you say, this was a chance meeting when she was at the Cannes Film Festival and he took a liking to her and they wrote letters to each other and then that was it. And then she's sailing on a ship to, to Monaco and leaving everything that she knew behind, yeah. um, including an incredibly successful career. I think that's why people questioned it so much because right. she was at she was at the pinnacle of her career and she had such um, talent, um, you know, and she had a great thing going with Hitchcock. And I think people were disappointed that mm -hmm. she was leaving that. So they looked to blame. He was almost the villain. It was like you've 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 taken her away from this fantastic career, and we want to see more of her movies. Um, and I think people would would like to have thought maybe if she hadn't had the tragic end would she have come back to 
the movies and it's a fascinating what if. Well, and we ask the question there, you know, as as feminists, is is that the right thing to do? Um, and I think that that's sort of a, a short-sighted question. I think that being a feminist has uh, – there's a million lenses and a million angles with that. And what could be more uh, – what could be stronger than making such a difficult, challenging choice, becoming – um, someone who is a diplomat on a world stage, someone who starts charities like the Grace F- uh, Kelly Foundation for artists mm. um, and actors that's still going today and um, donates millions of dollars. In fact, um, Leslie Odom Jr., I believe, with Hamilton, the musical, his uh, college debts were paid by the Grace Kelly Foundation. We just found that information, which is very cool. Um, and and so and she was very active with the Red Cross. Why is that less than being an actress? How is that really? Uh, you know, you're giving up everything just to be with a man. It's not. She's she's taking a different career choice. And I think that that's the same with Meghan Markle. You know, she's gone from one career to another, as well as love and family. So, you know, what could be more femme than that? And that's something that that Hazel and I really kind of wanted to have this little light undercurrent of that happening as well. And this is why we put some of that information in the back of the book. It's called the PS section, where we we talk a little bit about those things. So Princess Grace's death uh, was felt so keenly in the United States, um, her death in a car accident. and I was 12 at the time, 1982, and I lived in the Philadelphia area, and she had grown up there, and it was news for days. It was local news for days. Um, I'm wondering uh, where you were when Princess Grace died, and did that intrigue you at the time? Uh, because I'm sure you were children and didn't know a whole lot about the royal wedding story, but... I'm wondering, you know, how you came to write the story about America's princess. So I would have been the same age um, when when that tragic car accident happened. And I, I think I wouldn't have known too much about Princess Grace. I, I would obviously have seen photographs of her. Um, and it was just so shocking that a member of a royal family could die in, in so suddenly in such a tragic way. And I do remember probably seeing it on a newspaper um, but, uh, you know, age 12, it sort of passed me by a little bit. Um, but it, I think we just, nobody could believe that, that that had happened. And those stories, I think whether you're very aware of them or not, they stay with you. And obviously then we had a very, very similar tragedy with Princess Diana. So I was uh, much older and was very aware of her. Um, I was actually in Sydney in Australia at the time of her car accident. Um, and that was so shocking and there were so many parallels, really. And, and Princess Diana attended Princess Grace's funeral. You know, there were all these parallels between them. So Grace Kelly came to me sort of later in life um, as I grew up and, and developed this fabulous nostalgia for old Hollywood and these incredibly elegant, glamorous women. And I wanted to look like them. Um, so I think it's we still want later. to look we like them. Yeah, we will one day. <laughs> <laughs> but it's... Um, yeah, it's as I've as, as I've become a writer, and I be, I've I've learned how to um, tell other people's stories. And she was somebody that we once we had settled on the the region, we we came to the south of France first because we wanted to write a very um, elegant romantic summer novel. 
and and we just associated her with that place straight away and then I kind of came back and went oh, of course I've admired her from afar for years and now I get to really indulge that and and spend hours of my day looking at photographs of her wedding dress I mean this is the best job in the world that we're doing here right <laughs> and um, that wedding dress spawned so many others it's still fashionable it's to this still yeah. the most iconic I think yeah um, yeah. Kate Middleton very openly modeled her wedding dress, um, the Duchess of Cambridge, on, on that. It's just such a beautiful dress. Yeah. yeah, we're hoping to try and see it at some stage if we yeah. can on our travels. Heather, what, what was your impression? Um, I was a young child. I was um, about six, six mm-hmm. or seven. And so it was not on my radar at all. Right. Um, we actually lived in London at the time. My dad is retired military. So that added another whole layer of removal. There wasn't, we didn't have a lot of, t- we, I don't think we even had a TV at the time. Um, and so I didn't see that, you know, I wasn't reading newspapers. I was very yeah. far removed. Um, but like Hazel said, old Hollywood glamour is is something that I think as you um, become a teenager and you're, you know, looking, who, you're asking this question about who am I and, and who am I modeled after and who are, you know, who are these people that I would like to be like? Of course, that's one of the, they're all so beautiful. And that was one of the things that attracted me. And also my dad loves watching old movies. And so I kind of picked that up from him. We would spend hours watching some of these old, older movies and, um, and so that was sort of swirling in the back of my head. And like Hazel said, we our first book, Last Christmas in Paris, is set during World War One, and um, it's also a love story. But you know, war is has high stakes and tragedy. And so we wanted to write the opposite of that. And um, when we talked about the South of France, like she said. We saw scarves and big sunglasses and striped umbrellas, and Grace Kelly was the very, very next thing, you know. So, um, uh, yeah, and that's that's pretty much so how we came thought, to that. You know, I have to learn more about this. Woman. Absolutely, and I didn't know that much about her. Um, I, I, just I suppose knew. your readers won't either. I yes, mean, it's a whole new generation, she, exactly. and that's a big part of what we wanted to do is bring this really talented woman and this beautiful story that is mirroring exactly what's happening with Meghan Markle to a new generation. So we've actually had, and it's it's so lovely that we've had that reaction from readers who haven't known so much. They know the name, but they they didn't know the detail. And they've read the book and gone and looked up all of her movies and looked at footage of the wedding. And one reader said, you know, this novel brings her back to life. And that's just the most incredible thing as an author to hear that you've spent time. You know, I sat at my desk and and cried the other day. I was looking at um, a montage, you know, stills and video of her and I've spent so much time with this beautiful woman and, and this just collaboration of pieces just really moved me to tears. And you do, you in, you inhabit these people's lives and you feel very connected to them whilst you're writing and researching their, their story. So for readers to have that emotional connection when they close the book is just fantastic. It's pretty and, great. You know, we, we encourage that. <laughs> Yeah, there's been quite an outpouring from readers about um, just really loving the 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 essence of the book and the the romance, and that's mm-hmm. been so fun to see. We've really really loved that. So, mm-hmm. and Monaco is a little bit of a, a puzzle. I mean, it's not well known to Americans, um, and you know, I even watched a documentary on uh, the prince. Uh, they they followed him for a year, and. Um, I didn't know a whole lot about what went on there and 
why it has so much wealth and I think it's just kind of fascinating to Americans. Here's this like tiny principality of 30,000 people and they have a prince. Right? And yeah, it's just um it's a curious place it's, in a lot of ways. There's yeah. castles and this you know yeah, the castle the, the Le Rocher the the, the the prince's palace, the Grimaldi um family seat is, is at the top of the rock in Monaco and it is this small principality with its with its own rules and it, its own culture in a way and and obviously now I think a lot of us if you follow um Formula One racing at all um that's one of the most iconic Formula One races is in and around the streets of Monaco and the streets are so narrow and winding and it, it creates high drama so it's an incredibly wealthy um, playground, yeah. um, and a lot of the very wealthy racing drivers have chosen to have Monaco as their home. Um, but it's absolutely beautiful. I mean, I think anybody who went there um, to to visit would be blown away by it. It's mm. a beautiful place. I'm wondering why there aren't Hallmark movies made after <laughs> this situation because there's always some random country you've never heard of with that's fake with a with a prince and a you know an American woman who goes over there for whatever reason. Yeah. I can see this, you know, sparking a whole a whole chain a whole of new genre. Hallmark movies. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to see it on the screen because oh, yeah. it's so rich and beautiful and it's such a great summer read. The book is Meet Me in Monaco. It is on store shelves. Go pick it up. Hazel Gaynor and Heather Webb, thanks so much for joining us today on Author Talks. Thank you for Thank having you us. Thank you so much. And that's where we close the book on this week's chapter. Next week, we tackle The Chain, thriller that's shaping up to be one of the hottest books of the summer. In that spirit... Follow us on Twitter and Instagram and tell five of your friends to follow at WCBS ADD Books or else. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.